Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and the greatest of emergency medicine where we're trying to keep you up on the literature and we're trying to do that quickly and easily. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering from this week. First off, chest compressions. Should we do them for the whole time or stop for that, day, you know, that breathing thing? Second, hold on. Can we trust PCARN head CT rules in children under three months? It's a good question. Let's find out. After that, get the POCUS out for your appy patients. Then the Tomahawk RCT. Rush, rush, rush to get an angiography. Or you could take your time after an arrest. And then from the last article, a different approach for ROSC. Let's try pressors and steroids. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the complete Aaron Lacey, Graham Van Shake, Megan Hilbert, Lauren Murphy, and Clay Smith. And that brings us to the first article, which title reads like a normal sentence, but here we go. Chest compression strategy 30 to 2 is difficult to adhere to, but has better survival than continuous chest compressions when done correctly, out of the Journal of Resuscitation. That feels like I don't even have to tell you about the article, but we'll go through it anyways. So it feels like a lot of things are going on during a resuscitation, but what it kind of boils down to is that you really need that high-quality CPR. There's only a few reasons to justify stopping CPR, and one of them can be to deliver breaths. Anyone who's ever taken basic life support courses will be familiar with the 30 to 2 ratio of compressions to breaths. But a simpler approach would be possibly to just give continuous CPR and then give breaths whenever during that. Would that be as good a strategy or a better strategy? This study was a secondary analysis of a large RCT that showed that pausing compressions to give two breaths versus continuous CPR both had the same survival to discharge rates. The secondary analysis part of this, which I know already sounds like we answered our question, is that if we're controlling for adherence to these strategies, would that alter the results? Both methods had pretty poor compliance, about 50%. A little better for continuous CPR, though, which I guess means that it's probably simpler. I mean, it is simpler. You don't have to count anything. You just push on the chest. So when adherence was controlled for, though, continuous CPR had a lower odds ratio for survival, 0.72, compared with 1.05 for the 30 to 2 method. I'd say it's nice to keep this in mind, but really what matters the most is that you should probably just be picking a method, sticking with it, and trying to adhere to doing reliable, high-quality CPR as much as possible. In a spoonful, when we take into account adherence, pausing to give breaths every 30 seconds has better survival than constant chest compressions with random breaths, though constant compressions is probably easier to maintain. And after that, I bring you the second article titled Risk of Traumatic Brain Injuries in Infants Younger Than 3 Months with Minor Blunt Head Trauma out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. So kids are going to bump their heads, it's an unfortunate reality, and it's what happens when you have a soggy noodle for a neck. It's not their fault, though, so we shouldn't penalize them by scanning all of them. So unless you believe that your clinical experience is better than aggregate data, which you hopefully shouldn't if you listen to this, then decision aids are going to be very helpful in this one. Unfortunately, many are not validated for patients younger than three months old. BCARN is kind of in that boat, so let's fix that. Should be easy enough. This was a secondary analysis of a PCARN prospective observational study, limiting the scope to those who were just less than three months old. And then there were correlating risks as given by the PCARN CT head rule and dividing the patients into three groups. Those groups were clinically important TBIs, which is pretty much any TBI that's really going to change your management, visible TBI on CT, and lastly, a skull fracture on CT. 
Now, they were able to analyze just over a thousand patients less than three months old with blunt trauma TBIs. So here's the juice. Only one patient who was low risk by PCARN had a clinically important TBI. That's just 0.2% of the population. However, 10 times as many patients who were classified as low risk had TBI findings on CT and almost 10 times as many patients had a skull fracture that was seen on CT. This leaves you with kind of two ways to decide how to practice. You can be quite confident in identifying pretty well all the clinically important TBIs. But are you going to be okay with missing some not clinically important yet kind of scary findings if you don't scan them? I personally say, yeah, I mean, go for it. But I'm going to keep in mind that this study was retrospective and without granular data on the mechanism of actions of the trauma. Also, it's good to keep in mind that these rules should not be used on patients who are suspected of abuse. And how many of those patients were scanned in this study, it's, we, we don't really know. Also, not every kid was scanned, so we don't know what we missed either. In a spoonful, the PCARN decision rule does a really quite good job of identifying clinically important TBIs in kids less than three months old. It doesn't do as well at predicting signs of TBI on CT or skull fractures, though. And that brings us to the third article, a prospective multi-center evaluation of point-of-care ultrasound for appendicitis in the emergency department out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Now, historically, the diagnosis of appendicitis actually used to be a clinical diagnosis, which now is kind of crazy because we know that both physical exam and lab results are not very reliable in giving you a clear answer. So how about POCUS then? Will this fix our problem? This was a prospective multi-center observational study of convenience patients. They found that right lower quadrant ultrasounds were 85% sensitive and 63% specific for acute appendicitis. That probably exaggerates how well this would perform in real life though, so you have to keep that in mind because they were pretty thorough and they had a standardized checklist to make sure that everything was done properly. There were some small differences in the you know, sensitivity and specificity based on the training level of the person who was doing the scan. But what really made a bigger difference was if these patients were pediatric patients or adults with BMIs under 30. Even in these patients though, it was only a small improvement. So right lower quadrant POCUS could still use some development. In a spoonful, POCUS isn't the greatest test for acute appendicitis, but being more experienced or having a pediatric or thin adult patient will help. Then the fourth article, titled Angiography After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Without ST Segment Elevation, out of the New England Journal of Medicine. No shock, really, that out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is going to have a pretty poor prognosis, we know that. One of the most common causes of arrest is a myocardial infarction. Now, of course, the best treatment for MIs accompanied by ST elevation is going to be to get them to the cath lab pronto. The question here is essentially, should arrest, not obviously due to other causes, be considered essentially a STEMI equivalent? This trial is the second and largest randomized trial seeking to answer that question. If your post-arrest patient is stable, doesn't have ST elevation on ECG, do they need to be immediately rushed to get a coronary angiography? This study actually builds on the work of the COACT trial, but now we're including patients with both shockable and non-shockable rhythms. Patients excluded from this study were those with ST elevation, obvious causes of arrest that were not cardiac, unstable patients, or those with cardiogenic shock. Patients were randomized to either immediate coronary angiography as soon as possible, the median time was 2.9 hours post-arrest, or a delayed group which had coronary angiography sometime after 24 hours when it was convenient. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality at 30 days, 
and there is no significant difference between the groups. The composite secondary endpoint of death or severe neurological deficit occurred more often in the immediate angiography group, a risk ratio of 1.16. Now that's interesting, but it's just going to be hypothesis generating, remember it's just a secondary outcome, and if anything, it's just going to be a further reason not to rush to angiography. So still probably worth speaking with cardiology about this. Of course, you're not going to be the one making the final call. That's going to be theirs. But putting off angiography seems to be a very viable option. In a spoonful, stable post-ROSC patients without ST elevation on their ECG had no significant difference in their 30-day mortality rate if they had immediate or delayed coronary angiography. And that brings us to the last article, which was titled The Effect of Vasopressin and Methylprednisolone versus Placebo on Return of Spontaneous Circulation in Patients with In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. In theory, we could probably improve upon the medications we give for ACLS. I mean, they're not exactly miracle workers. We're just sustaining the patient between shocks, trying to find a cause, and hoping ourselves blue in the face in the meantime. So once we're talking about, you know, theoretical, then hmm, if we think about it, you know, vasopressin could, in theory, improve coronary perfusion, which would be nice. And steroids would decrease the systemic inflammation brought on by, well, dying. So let's try that out. This trial was a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of 501 adult patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest. They received at least one dose of epinephrine during their arrest, and then were randomized to either placebo or 20 units of vasopressin and 40 milligrams of methylprednisolone. Up to four additional doses of vasopressin, 20 units, or placebo were administered after each additional epinephrine. Alright, so using this intervention, that is giving pressors and steroids, actually increased the rate of ROSC compared to placebo with a risk ratio of 1.3. That's 42% for the intervention group and 33% for the placebo arm. That's pretty cool. But unfortunately, ROSC isn't really a very patient-centered outcome because they're probably still going to be unconscious. What's patient-centered is more things like 30-day survival and favorable neurological outcomes, which were not different between the groups. The trouble with this study, despite its rigorous design, was there was a lack of controlling for post-ROSC care. The placebo group received steroids nearly twice as often as the intervention group, and nearly twice as many were put on ECMO as well. So, while the 2015 AHA guidelines say that vasopressin and methylprednisolone can be considered an arrest, I'd focus on excellent chest compressions as the first priority since that's what's going to perfuse your patient. Perhaps in the future though, these medications will play a role. In a spoonful in in-hospital cardiac arrest. Giving vasopressin and steroids increased the rates of ROSC, but did not improve 30-day survival or neurological outcomes. Alright, that wraps us up, but let's do a quick review, like we always do. From the first article, in terms of survival, it's best to stop compressions after every 30 for some breaths, rather than constant CPR. The constant approach, though, is easier to adhere to. From the second article, the PCARN CT head rule does a good job of identifying patients with clinically important TBIs in children less than 3 months old. You might miss some findings of TBIs on the CT had you gotten it, though, but we don't know the implications of this at the moment. Then from the third article, pocus of appendicitis isn't a great test, but it's best done by experienced practitioners on children or thinner adult patients. From the fourth article, we have more data showing the need not to rush to angiography for stable post-ROSC patients without ST elevation. Looking like a rest is not quite a STEMI equivalent. 
And then finally, from the fifth article, I'm not ready to add vasopressin and steroids to my ACLS protocol just yet. Not until we get some more patient-centered outcomes, that is. But it did improve rates of ROSC. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them, we have CME credits which are provided through a partnership with Hippo Education and they can be made available to you if you go to our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the articles we've summarized can be found there as well, and if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. 